Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for attending the after lunch session on day one. I'm sure everyone's full, right? All right. This is a course code MAS01, When Stars Collide, the Diagnosis and uh, Pathophysiology of Minor Traumatic Brain Injury and Post-Traumatic Headache. As a couple pieces of administrative housekeeping, if you would, please silence all your mobile devices out of respect for your peers and the speaker today. And if you haven't already, please download the mobile app so we can solicit any feedback on the event and today's session. With that said, our distinguished speaker is Dr. Gary J. He's a clinical professor from the University of North Carolina, Go Tar Heels. So please help me welcome Dr. J, everybody. Thank you. Good afternoon. How many people are too postprandial to sit through this? <laughs> All right, yeah, me too. Uh, that's good. All right. What, we want, what I want to concentrate on today as much as possible for the headache part, second part will be more practical, but for minor traumatic brain injury or mild traumatic brain injury, whatever your preference is, I want to go through that. And what's important, particularly now, we have CTE, which I will be talking about, okay, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So you'll be surprised at the number of that, and let's just get started. Nothing to disclose. We'll just blow through the learning objectives. Here's the outline, basically, of what we're going to be talking about, but this is not going to be a significantly difficult lecture like last year. Okay, depending on who you read, <clears throat> there's between 1.5 and 1.7 million brain injuries a year in the United States, okay? And it's estimated that number. However, not all of those patients show up in the emergency department. Lots of times people have injury and don't report it. So we know that there's 1.7 million individuals, 275,000 are hospitalized on average, 52,000 die in the hospital. 80% of those patients, the 1.7 million, are minor traumatic brain injuries or concussions. And the leading causes, not including military issues, are falls, motor vehicle accidents, blows to the head, typically through assault, and other slip and fall accidents, and other. Now, the cost of this is significant. It runs about as much, if not more, depending on your numbers, as the treatment of traumatic brain, uh, excuse me, of uh, brain injury. Talking 50, I'm sorry, chronic pain, which can go up to 65, between 56 and $65 billion a year. So here we have $56 billion. 44% of that is just for mild traumatic brain injury. Now, contact sports, I mentioned that. 10% of college people who are in contact sports, like football, soccer, and 20% of high school soccer players and football players experience a minor traumatic brain injury or a concussion each year. General trends we've gone over, but there's twice as many males with brain injury as there are females, number one. And from age three onward, boys are two to four times more likely to sustain a brain injury and four to six times more likely to sustain death than females. 
Okay, youths, 15 to 25 are the primary group of folks that get brain injured. Preschoolers are the second most common group. Now, brain injury victims, this is important, are two times more likely after a concussion or minor traumatic brain injury. They're two times more likely to experience another blow within 30 days of the first. If that happens, you're looking at a catastrophe because the blood-brain barrier and all the other things that we're going to talk about have not compensated for the first injury enough so that you have a second staggered injury, which becomes more difficult to recover from. And then there's a eight times increased likelihood after two brain injuries that there'll be a third. So typically, this is found in the lower socioeconomic class, except for people who play in college sports. Alcohol use in 50% of the adults who develop or experience a concussion or minor traumatic brain injury are inebriated. That's one reason they do it. Youths, including problems of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and aggression, are four times more likely to have a mild but not a severe brain injury. This is from our friends at the CDC. See falls, MVAs, motor vehicle accidents. This goes up to 2012, but this is from the Department of Defense. Okay, the numbers, and this is mild traumatic brain injury. This is moderate to severe down here. So you can see the number of minor traumatic brain injury people or patients is rather significant. There's a different form of diagram, and here you can see other medical care or no care, again, because many people don't feel it appropriate or necessary to go to the ED. So now, you've heard me say this a couple of times, but let's correct the nosology so that you all understand. A concussion is a minor traumatic brain injury by definition. Okay? So when you hear, oh, he has a concussion, that doesn't mean, oh, it's not a big deal. That is a, bright, a minor traumatic brain injury. So you need to be careful, and we're going to talk about all this stuff. Diag uh, definitions. The Brain Injury Association of America, a good group to listen to, a concussion is a blower jolt to the head that can change the way your brain normally works. It's also called a mild traumatic brain injury, and a concussion can result from a car crash, sports injury, or other in seemingly innocuous fall. So CDC, our friends there, define concussion as a traumatic brain injury. Again, you notice the definition is the same, caused by a bump a blow or a jolt to the head. And as somebody once joked, I think it was in a Mel, Mel Brooks movie, it's not the fall that kills you, it's when you stop suddenly. It's the sudden deceleration. If you're in a motor vehicle accident, your head, if you're the driver, will go forward and back. And it's typically that backstop that causes the problems we're going to talk about. The American Congress of Rehab Medicine talked about mild traumatic brain injury definition the Brain Injury Interdisciplinary Special Interest Group, I was a part of this group that made this definition, involves a traumatically induced physiological disruption of brain function manifested by at least one of the following, any period of loss of consciousness, any amnesia, any alteration in mental status, being dazed, confused, focal neurological signs may or may not be present 
loss of consciousness is less than 30 minutes. Glasgow Coma Score, and I'll go over exactly what that is, within 30 minutes will go from 13 to 15 or always be 15, and post-traumatic amnesia is less than 24 hours. Uh, we can move on that. There's two types of brain injury. We're not going to talk about an open or penetrating brain injury. We're only here to talk about closed brain injury. Here's a nice little picture with closed brain injury with acceleration, deceleration injury. You get diffuse axonal shearing or injury. Con coup contra coup, a blow of the head here will cause contusion here, but also a contusion here. It's coup and contra coup. And here's your penetrating gunshot wound, which we're not going to address. Here are some of the multiple symptoms. And one of the things I want to do during this talk is talk about in detail three patients that were both complex and will give you some further insight into dealing with these folk when you have patients with this type of problem. With post-concussion syndrome, you might see a lot of patients with a diagnosis of post-concussive syndrome. Somatically, Headache is the most common problem. And as we'll talk about later, it occurs within seven days of the head trauma. If it, doesn't, if it occurs later, it is most likely not associated, unless the patient is unconscious for a week or two, and then it'll occur within seven days of them regaining consciousness. Dizziness, fatigue, visual disturbances, sensitivity to light and sound, okay? Cognitively, decreased concentration, memory problems, but also you have major issue, problems with multitasking. Okay? If you had any one question to ask a patient with a post-concussive syndrome is, can you do two things at once? Okay, can you watch TV and then get up, go to the uh, uh, kitchen, get something? Remember what you're going to the kitchen for. When you get back to the TV room, do you remember what you were watching? Those are questions that you want to ask. Neuropsychiatric issues, anxiety, depression, irritability, mood swings, sleep disturbances, very labile emotionality. Now, the history of post-concussive syndrome is fascinating. Levin, in 1987, said, eh, natural history is recovery within weeks to months. Not a problem. 95, Alexander, a small percentage will have persistent symptoms. He underestimated that by a lot. Repeat concussions, more morbidity, 2002, and educational interventions are effective in reducing symptoms. Ponsford, again, 2002. Most important cognitive changes, attention and concentration, speed of mental processing, inability to multitask, again, really important. Learning, information, retrieval is difficult and there are problems with executive front, uh, function. Executive function resides in the frontal lobes. And what you see are problems with planning, problem solving, self-monitoring. These people have poor judgment, apathy, very inappropriate behaviors. These are the people, you know, a very conservative woman will jump on a table in a bar and start dancing, okay? This is actually not unheard of with these folk. Now, Myths and misconceptions. Every one of these statements is false. The degree of impairment correlates with the force of impact. Not true. A mild brain injury will improve quickly. Not true. 
Children's brains are more adaptable and pliant, therefore more resilient to the damaging effects of brain injury. Not true. Think of shaken baby syndrome. The younger the child, the more likely they won't suffer from profound long-term effects. Again, shaken baby syndrome. TBI impairments always show up right away. That's something that we've got to talk about in detail because it can take a month for you to determine just how severe the brain injury is. And when you see the patient within a week of their concussion or brain injury, and they say, okay, you examine them, and they say, okay, doc, how bad is it? The answer is, come back in three weeks so I can examine you again, and then I can be more accurate. The Glasgow Coma Scale. If you don't do TBI, you probably don't know this, but mild traumatic brain injury, 13 to 15, moderate TBI, 9 to 12, severe TBI, 3 to 8. How do you get three? Eye-opening, no response. Motor response, none. Verbal response, none. That's three. So you're 15, spontaneous eye-opening follows commands, oriented to person, place, time, date, and so on. So these are things that you look for. Now, again, severity, Glasgow Coma Scale, loss of consciousness, post-traumatic amnesia, mild, 13 to 15 within uh, 30 minutes, less than 20 minutes to an hour loss of consciousness, less than 24-hour post-traumatic amnesia. Moderate brain injury, again, GCS, 9 to 12, 1 to 24 hours, and post-traumatic amnesia, greater than 24, less than 7 days. Severe, 3 to 8. These patients essentially are bed-bound. So there was severity grading by the American Academy of Neurology back in 1997. Grade 1 was transient confusion, no loss of consciousness, and symptoms resolved within 15 minutes. The uh, AAN has since sort of taken this back. Grade 2 is transient confusion, no loss of consciousness, but the symptoms last longer than 15 minutes. Grade 3 was at any loss of consciousness. The PROG statement, which was eight years later, simple concussion, complex concussion, and multiple repeat concussion are classified as complex. So again... We looked at cognitive, somatic, emotional, sleep dysfunction. So now we go into the brain, the pathophysiology. Thanks to Homer, we know where we are. All right. At the time of the injury, whether it's a slip and fall, blow to the head when you fall, a blow to the head by an assault, you're in a car accident, acceleration, deceleration injury, first thing you need to know is if it's straight on, you're lucky because typically if there's a rotational component that the patient is turning his head when it's flexed forward and backwards, you have greater problems with tissue and blood vessels which become stressed, stretched, compressed, and torn. Secondary brain injury, which is really the main issue that we have to deal with. Cellular processes, biochemical cascades, which I will show you, and it can occur for minutes to days up to a month after the injury. So how do you evaluate the TBI? Now, it used to be easy. It's gotten a little more complex, particularly because now physicians in a sports arena, they always have them. If you look at the National Football League and some others, soccer leagues, uh, and I've done it, you're there, and it's our job to 
look at these patients, talk to them, see if they're able to return to the game. What do you do? We used to ask, you know, questions of orientation. You do a little more for brain injury, for brain injury stuff, but they're really non-sensitive. McCray created the standardized assessment criteria of concussion. First is orientation to time, you ask the patient. Immediate memory, repeating words. Concentration, repeating string of numbers in reverse. Delayed recall. What were those numbers I asked, or those words I asked you five minutes ago? Neurological exam, just not a full exam, just enough to know, particularly the cranial nerves. And lastly, if it's on the football field or one of the other fields, you're going to be looking at exertional maneuvers. You would ask the patient to do sprints, sit-ups, push-ups, and so on. And if they have increased pain on movement, that is one of the reasons that you say, okay, you're sitting this out now. Also, total tau in the blood has now been approved as a biomarker at the time of a concussion to determine if it's above a certain level, the patient must sit down. And actually, he's not allowed or she's not allowed to play until the total tell level is markedly decreased. Neuroimaging, okay, um, did a, heard Sean Mackey this morning do a great job talking about functional MRI. Um, we're not so fancy and highfalutin with traumatic brain injury. CAT scan is the scan of choice. Okay. One of the reasons is it's the gold standard because it'll tell you if there's blood or not, and that's your first concern. Okay. MRI is mar uh, markedly more expensive, and particularly in the rural areas, maybe not as easy to obtain. Cost is much more. Clinical functionality and neurosurgical injuries are detected by CT scan, but they're not as frequent as you'd think. A GCS of 15, normal, Glasgow Coma Scale, normal, okay? 5% of those normal patients will have CAT scans that are abnormal. 20% with a GCS of 14 will be abnormal, and 30% with a GCS of 13 will be abnormal. Yet, with all those abnormalities, only 1% will need neurosurgical intervention. But you need to know what it is. 85% of all severely injured patients remain disabled after one year, and only 15% return to work at five years. Severe injury. With mild traumatic brain injury, 50% of patients have moderate or severe disability at one year, and only about 45 to 50% turn to return to full functional activity. And um, this might be a good time to talk about one patient. Yeah, before we do this. This gentleman was a 41-year-old dentist who was at a vacation resort, and he slipped on a, gla a bottle of Coca-Cola that was on the stairs right before and went down 10 concrete stairs headfirst. Six-minute loss of consciousness. Okay. He's a very smart man. He was actually on the board of dentistry in this particular large city. Okay. So this happens about two months before I see the patient. And I see the patient not for headache, as is typical, but because he was pulling the wrong teeth 
doing root canals on the wrong teeth, or he'd forget a procedure in the middle of it. And so his staff insisted he'd get to see a doctor. So that's why he comes in with an, oh, shucks, I'm fine. So the first thing you need to know about minor traumatic brain injury patients is denial is not just a river in Egypt. These people absolutely do not believe that they have any problem, okay? Because they look fine. They act fine. They think. So I see this gentleman, this dentist, and I say, all right, now look, you maybe you want to stop treating patients. Let's get you treated, and then let's see where we are. Okay, fine. Two days later, I get a call from his staff. He pulled the wrong tooth again on a patient. Bring him back in. Sit down and talk with him. Listen, you've got to understand this is not a game. Okay, you're a member of the board of dentistry. Would you allow somebody that does what you're doing to be a practicing dentist? Oh, absolutely not. But he goes back, and a week later, I get another call from his staff. All right? Only this time, the staff calls to tell me that in two days, he'd gotten three medical mal or dental malpractice suits. In three days. Three in two days, pardon me. So I see him, and I ask his father who was a retired dentist, to come in with him. And the bottom line is, we're talking, and I'm saying, do you understand what's going on? And his answer was, yeah, you know, it happens all the time. There's not a problem here. And his father is sitting there going, um, son, I think that you ought to listen to the doctor. And the bottom line was, the conversation decreased in ability to be proactive, to the point where I had to say to him, listen, right now I'm going to call the Board of Dentistry right in front of you and your father because I'd like your father, if he will, or you'll find someone else to take over your practice and I'm going to have them limit your license. And this guy just looked at me, his jaw dropped, and his father said, that's right. Okay, so I did. I called him on a cell phone, excuse me, on a uh, speakerphone so he could hear the conversation. Two weeks later, I get another call from his staff. He's at it again. At this time, his staff states that they will all leave en masse if he comes back into the office. It was a day that his father wasn't there taking care of patients, but he was there. Now, interestingly, through all this time, he would tell me about his fiance that was with him when he fell and hurt his head. But he, and I kept asking him, would you please bring her in because I want to let her know what's going on. He never brought her in. So what happened was we finally were able to treat him, three-month treatment program. He finally realized that he couldn't do dentistry anymore, but he's still smart enough. And understand, brain injury does not necessarily make people stupid. Okay, You can have all sorts of cognitive issues, but it doesn't mean you're stupid. This gentleman ended up taking a real estate license exam and passed it and got into real estate and did very well. But points from there is denial. These people don't understand their own inabilities to do what they're used to doing. Their brain, their body, their hands, they think they know what they used to do, but they don't. So... Neuropathophysiology of minor traumatic brain injury. That's one of three. 
The first problem that occurs at the time of the brain injury is diffuse axonal injury. Typically, these are shear forces in the brain caused by, again, the sudden deceleration. Not the acceleration, but it's the deceleration back. You get impairment in axonal transport. You see axonal swelling. I'll show you an axonal bulb. You get Wallerian degeneration, death of uh, brain cells, and axonal transection. Okay? Cortical contusions are not infrequent, and these are secondary, as I showed you, to coup and contra-coup injuries. And secondary to this, and this is what essentially creates the duration of the time that you have to wait to make a final examination, release of excitatory neurotransmitters, which particularly glutamate, are toxic, and burnout neurons, and free radicals, excitotoxicity, secondary injury, including intracerebral inflammation, and increased intracranial temperature. Here you see traumatic brain injury at that time. The blood-brain barrier actually gets disturbed at the time of the injury, but it's early, and it can take days or a week or more, 10 days, for it to really open up. You have axonal damage at the time of the injury, decreased blood flow, and probably of all the difficulties that are encompassed by this problem, decreased blood flow is one of the main problems because what does blood bring? Besides oxygen, glucose. And one of the things that you're going to see is um, decreased blood flow during and after the injury creates more problems than all the other chemical cascades that you're going to see. So after decreased blood flow, you get vasogenic edema, increased glucose metabolism, and increased free radicals. But there's decreased blood to bring you glucose, so there's nothing to metabolize, and there's nothing to sweep the toxic problems or the free radicals away. And that will cause a change in cell wall permeability of the neurons. That will give you increased cellular calcium, decreased magnesium, which do what? Calcium neurotoxicity, when you have enormous amounts of calcium in the extracellular space, this will create cell death throughout that area of the brain. You have decreased cellular blood flow. We talked about decreased intracellular magnesium changes the sodium and potassium pump, decreased energy metabolism, impaired glucose use, and protein synthesis because there's no blood going through the area. And finally, increased extracellular potassium, increased cerebral vasoconstriction, which further decreases blood flow, and loss of consciousness. Here's a cartoon on axonal injury, normal compression, shearing, disconnection, and degeneration is Wallerian. So the range of pathophysiological processes can be involved, a range. Cerebral concussion, okay, or contusion. Diffuse axonal injury is the most marked physical sign. Traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, epidural or subdural hematomas, these are not as common as you would expect. Time is important at the time of the injury you see almost immediately after development of free radicals, increased calcium, sodium changes, glutamate. You see over here, you see increases in 
cell death, and here's apoptosis after an issue, inflammation, and you see the very beginning of the start of remodeling, and far later, you see functional remodeling. Now, this is the point, okay? Here is the percent of time. Here's 100. Here you can see calcium extracellularly marked over time, over days and weeks. Here's a gluco uh, I'm sorry, glutamate potassium spike, okay? Here is the, number, the line you need to look at. Decreased cerebral blood flow, okay? So you have the initial injury. Membranes get injured. Increased glutamate, increased potassium, increased calcium. They all leak into the extracellular area. Ionic pumps try to work overtime, but they can't get rid of all the potassium and all the calcium. Glucose takes initial increases. The blood-brain barrier doesn't allow it, and the brain itself doesn't have the blood to bring it in. So the claim that MTBI is a cellular dysfunction with little cell death is false. Here's another view. Period of vulnerability. Day one, you have an increased demand for glucose at the same time. Blood flow markedly bottoms out. Demand for glucose goes up and then falls because there's no blood to bring it in. And the blood falls and then starts to come back and typically dives back. And here is oxygenation, which is markedly diminished secondary to decreased blood. So again, another cartoon you can see here, the trauma. And here you can see Wallerian degeneration beginning. This is a nice cartoon. You can see this over here. Damaged axons separate from their cell bodies. Astrocytes and microglia, but particularly astrocytes, which typically nourish neurons, become phagocytic. Okay, they will eat, destroy neurons. Here's a nice picture of diffuse axonal injury. Okay, one of the things that happens is here you can see gray and white matter, and as you go forward, you see a destruction of the ability to determine what's gray and what's white matter in the CT scans. Here you can see shearing here, here, white matter shearing forces. Again, this was actually taken from a shaken baby. Blunt trauma can look at the same way. You see a rapid rise in intracranial temperature, and these changes become prolonged or permanent. Here's the MRI, three different views. This is apparent diffusion coefficient. Here you can see axonal injury. Diffusion weighted image, the same area of diffuse axonal injury. Gradient echo image over here. Now, this is where I think things are going, all right? But we don't have enough experience yet with diffusion tensor imaging. What this does is it looks at, in color, and I'll show you what those colors mean in a moment, but you look at the axonal tracts and the water in these axonal tracts and how it changes, okay? So here you can see the dreaded circle sign, almost as bad as the arrow sign in radiology, showing that there's changes here in the frontal axonal flow. And this is the same picture. But this is what it looks like. This is a normal patient. This really is very pretty, but it also tells us a hell of a lot. Here's a patient with head trauma. And by the way, red shows left to right. If you look at the skull, red shows what goes left to right. Okay? 
Green shows what goes front to back. Blue shows what goes from up to down. So what you see here on this patient is frontal lobe. Look how this looks here. And here you have what I call a moth-eaten look here. The frontal tracts are gone. And then in the posterior here, you see these tracts are gone. Here is probably the best picture of an axonal bulb. What you see on the left, you see compression, tension or torsion, shearing of the axon. And with shearing, you disrupt axoplasmic flow. You extrude axoplasm organelles in that region. Microtubule damage occurs, and then you see an axonal bulb. This is the best picture I've ever seen of an axonal bulb. Basically, the neuron up here is dead. I'm going to go quickly through this because we did it this way. Healthy volunteer. Here's the corpus callosum. Here's the frontal shearing. This is red because things are going left to right. Here's, look how moth-eaten the corpus callosum is. And look at how this is gone. You see how this extends? Not here. So I think tensor diffusion imaging has a lot of things that can be used in the, fr in the future, but as of yet, it's not there. So the blood-brain barrier, which we all know, supposedly keeps the brain safe from internal toxicity and problems. Well, here's a picture of the intact blood-brain barrier. Okay, here's the blood side, here's the brain side, neurons, astrocytes, microglia, here's your tight junctions. Nothing gets through the tight junctions in a normal brain. Just another picture, again, microglia, astroglia. Here's where the blood-brain barrier opens. Okay, you have red cells that are coming out into the blood on top of the brain. Remember, this is from not only internally, but also from the dura. And then you see thrombin. You see here, periocyte loss, increased edema, hypoxia. And then this is just a different way of saying you have both toxins and hypocarbia and axonal injury and neural degeneration leading to cell death. For those people that question just how bad blood-brain barrier opening can be, take a look at this patient right here in the parietal lobe. This is openly diffusion, open diffusion from left parietal blood-brain barrier opening. Okay, here's frontal lobe, here's temporal lobe. Whoops. Here's temporal lobe. But what's important, here's frontal lobe, but look at all the little areas around that are just existent but not as significant as that main injury here. Same thing here. You have blood out there and even here. So blood-brain barrier issue is the main problem that causes a brain injury to last up to three weeks to four weeks to finally, at that point, the blood-brain barrier will repair itself and you can do a final evaluation on the patient and see what is causing, you know, what has happened to that patient. Okay, let's try another patient here before we get on to that. This is a young woman. She was 24 years old. 
she comes to see me with her boyfriend. And the issue was she was in a car accident four months prior. But for the past two and a half, three months, this woman who they were engaged and they lived in separate bedrooms and because she was bound and determined to save her virginity till their marriage. And she was very petite, very cute, very smart, all those nice, lovely things. But she started eating and eating, and in the course of two months, she gained 30 pounds. She didn't care. Her, her fiancé said, something's going on here. I don't know what. So they bring her in to see me. I did an evaluation. Yeah, she had some frontal lobe release signs. Those of you that don't know what those are, think of the three stooges of medicine, suck, snout, and grasp. These are immature, infantile release signs of the frontal lobe, indicative of frontal lobe trauma. Okay, You can see pommel mental if you look at the masseter muscle in somebody that doesn't have a beard. You can see, if you scratch there, you'll see the ipsilateral muscle there, quiver. Okay, You can do a jaw jerk. Striking there, you can see a snout. So those are things that you need to look for. So I looked for them. This woman, she had them all. And then went home to think about what we talked about. And he come back a week later instead of three weeks, as I asked. What was the problem? Seemingly three days before, the gentleman comes home, sees an unknown car in his driveway. It's a small car, he said. Sweat-laced windows. He couldn't see inside the car, but the car was moving back and forth. He didn't know what the hell was going on. He goes in the house, and 45 minutes later, his fiance walks in, rather disheveled. I'll leave what happened to you. The point is, gave me an injury to think about. How many of you have ever heard of Kluver-Busey syndrome? This patient actually published it. This patient had Kluver-Busey syndrome, which you can get rarely in humans. She was one of them, because when I did focal scans, she nailed both amygdala. You can see a Kluver-Busey in patients with temporal lobe ectomy for seizures. Okay? But typically, in the animal, you will have seven different signs of Kluver-Busey. In the human, if you have three or four, that's a lot. And she had memory problems. She had visual agnosia. She could look at her face and not recognize that person who'd been their best friend for years. She had hyperorality and hypersexuality. And she could control none of it. So when we finally got the diagnosis, I put her on some carbamazepine, Tegretol, and within two months, it resided. It got better. Okay. The issue is it's a nice thing to have a neurological disorder that you can treat but this was secondary to the blow to her brain. Turns out all good. Six months later, they were married. So back at the ranch, there was an old view of what happens at the time of injury. Okay, a failure of presynaptic membrane on energy pumps, sodium, potassium. And you get initial uh, depolarization with significant release of Glutamate. And what happens is it was thought that glutamate, and we still think it, gets onto the neuron, burns it out, destroys the neuron. 
okay? And you have increased release of calcium and all the things that we talked about before. The more recent opinion is that two things are affected, the first being the AMPA receptor, okay, with increased current release of AMPA receptor agonists, uh, reduction in expression of receptors that contain glutamate, and it's thought to be mediated by TNF-alpha, okay, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And then the NMDA receptor is also felt to be part of this problem. Generation of free radicals from nitric oxide, increased production of free radicals, and basically formation of perionitrate. Uh, okay, and you see increased calcium, and here you see increased cellular damage and death secondary to the nitration. You also see changes in neuroimmune and neuroendocrine systems, so you want to always check the HPA, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, all right? We talked about microglial activation, pro-inflammatory cytokine release, which can occur. Now, it can take three days to see one of these, a contusion. I talked about total tau being the first approved biomarker for brain injury. And particularly in athletes, will now take that biomarker in the blood to assess whether it's safe for the patient to return to play. Here's a list of a whole slew of biomarkers that can occur, but only one total tau has been approved. So CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. This was about five, six years ago, sort of a mystery that became a monstrosity when we realized just how significant this problem was. Evidence, which is fairly, I mean, the only way to diagnose this is post-mortem. So the evidence is pretty clear. Repeated concussions can cause cumulative neurological, neuropsychological, and neurodegenerative changes. You have increased severity and duration of mental status abnormalities after each separate incident of stroke, excuse me, of concussion. In addition to cognitive impairment, you have neuropsychiatric impairment. You can have little things like psychosis in stage one in these patients. Those of you that remember the greatest, okay, Muhammad Ali, had Parkinson's, which is one of the main issues with CTE in stage two. The incidence and prevalence are really unknown, again, looking at it from where we are now, because all the studies have been on pathological samples. Sports-related concussion, uh, increasing reports of dementia among National Football League players with a history of multiple concussions. I'll show you some pictures of the brain so you can see what happens. One study, pathological study, found CTE in 110 out of 111 brains, posta. Neurodegenerative disease is three times higher in retired NFL players compared to the general U.S. population, and the amount of Alzheimer's disease, four times higher 
in the general them in the general populations. Cumulative effects of repeated concussions, untold at this time, particularly because these children, these kids, the college kids, are still in school. But when you see them, you see their grades start diving. Chronic neurological impairment is a sequelae of boxing. Any neurologists in here might know the term. Dementia pugilistica. Okay, and I'll show you a picture of that that is marked. Okay, the incidence is in 20% of professional boxers. Okay, in combat-related TBI, single as well as multiple combat-related blast injuries in military has been identified as a precursor of CTE. So it's not just sports injuries. Okay, APOE, apolipoprotein E genotype is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease in the general population, but it's also seen in a subset of patients with CTE. There's one series of 30 boxers with an APOE genotype associated with increased severity of deficits among high but not low exposure boxers. And in another study, 53 professional football players, older patients with APOE genotype were more likely to have cognitive impairments than those without the APOE genotype. So CTE is defined pathologically by extensive tau immunoreactive degenerative disease, typically up around the superficial cortical layers. But remember, in the brain, you have sulci and gyri. And so you can see it deeper in the brain around the bottom of the gyri. Pathological findings appear to be very specific for CTE. One study found 32% of brains from 66 individuals with a history of repetitive brain injury to have CTE, but none of 198 brains from individuals without that history had any sign of CTE. So we pretty much know what this is from. A pathological study of 85 patients found that the severity of pathological findings would be correlated with the severity of clinical findings. And many people, including myself, consider CTE to be a progressive neurodegenerative disease, but it's still debated. What you see is cognitive impairments involving memory and executive function, aggression, paranoia, impulsivity, and mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and increased suicidality. I've had two former NFL players as patients with marked suicidality, so marked that I had to hospitalize them. So how do we classify CTE in a human being that is active and talking? There's three stages of the disease. The first stage has affective disturbances, including psychotic symptoms. Stage one. Stage two, social instability, erratic behavior, memory loss, and early Parkinsonian features, which all of which <coughs> get worse in stage three. Here's a picture. <coughs> stage two patient with rage, impulsivity, and depression. Look at the tau injury right down the gyrus. right down where the gyrus is. Again, diffusion tensor imaging gives us some indication, but we don't know enough about it to make it a routine issue. Also, it's more expensive. So there's no specific clinical 
diagnosis in the living except the points that I made before, okay? I see patients like this for cognitive disability, for psychosis for no reason, typically for short-term memory loss, okay? <coughs> Here's a normal brain. This one has advanced CTE, rather substantive difference. This is a normal patient. Notice the cellularity here. This is the brain of a former NFL linebacker, John Grimsley, who had eight concussions, died at the age of 45. Look at the tau capsules here. And this patient, significant, look at this, versus here to here, significant dementia pugilistica, boxer. This gentleman seemed to lose more than he won. Here's another example, normal brain tissue, and this is in a patient, former NFL athlete. Whoops. There we go. And you can see all the tau tangles here, but none in the normal patient. Here's another picture. This is more of a functional MRI. Here's the amygdala, thalamus. Two, this is normal, control. This is one NFL and the second NFL player. And you can see definitive damage. Here's another diffusion study. And you can see frontal lobe is totally without tracts post-multiple TBIs. There's no frontal lobe neuronal tracts in that region. So before we talk about post-traumatic headache, and I can give you some things you can do to help these folk. <coughs> Let me give you the third patient vignette. This was a 28-year-old man. He was a very smart man. He was in charge of the IT for this big city, uh, their public broadcasting network. He was in charge of all of it. He was in a car accident, had a one-minute loss of consciousness, he thinks. Okay, So I see him about six weeks later, and... Again, denial comes to my office. Absolutely nothing wrong with me, though he couldn't pass a standard memory test. Can you remember three words in five minutes? How about five words? Can you say anything backwards? He couldn't do any of it. So he said there's absolutely nothing wrong with him, so he left. Went back, he, they fired him because he couldn't do his job. He got a job in construction. And his first day on the job, he drove a forklift through a wall. Came back to my clinic a couple of days later saying, well, maybe you do have something there. I don't know. So we took care of him. First, we treated significant post-traumatic headache. You can't treat brain injury in the face of post-traumatic headache. You've got to get rid of the headache first because otherwise a neuropsychological eval, which is mandatory and absolutely necessary, is biased and inappropriate in the presence of pain. Okay? So you want to get rid of the pain first, then deal with the brain injury, which is what we did with this gentleman. After we treated him, first we got rid of his headache, then we treated the brain injury. I got him a job, or I didn't. My vocational therapist got him a job at Best Buy fixing computers. He was one of the geek squad, only they kept him in the back. 
And within two weeks, I got a call from the store saying, you know, he's good at fixing computers, but if he gets a call in the middle of that, and he goes and he answers the call, comes back, he forgets what he was doing and what he was, how he was doing it. He doesn't know anything. So we're going to have to fire him. I said, hold on. What about if I give him further limitations that he can only do one thing at a time? Again, this patient absolutely could not multitask. So they accepted the further limitations, and that was the last I heard of them for two years. I get a call from his attorney. He says, Gary, when was the last time you spoke or you saw this patient? Not oh, two years ago. Would you see him now? He's coming up to trial. Okay. Yeah, I saw him. Terrible, absolutely terrible. He'd been fired a year and a half earlier, was unable to ask for help. He had a baby with Down syndrome. His wife, who was the primary work person, she made the money to keep them alive, she had a job on the phone, telephone sales. And then good old Kaiser said, oh, you've got a tumor on your tongue. So they cut out two-thirds of her tongue. So much for that job. So the baby with extra needs, the wife who could no longer work, and my patient who was absolutely befuddled by everything goes to live at her family's home. So I see him, examine him. Yep, still got the same problems, only now you have more depression, more anxiety, and more anger that he cannot support his family. He even asked me if, the, if his child became a Downs baby, trisomy, because of his brain injury. And the answer, of course, was no. So just to give you a little hint, um, this morning somebody's talking about the legal system, Sean, Sean Mackey. This, I've done a lot of legal work, but this is the first and only time I actually sat through something this obnoxious. I get deposed by a group representing the insurance company that writes, there is no such thing as minor traumatic brain injury. Absolutely no such thing. It's a bogus diagnosis. So they, have, they hired this very highfalutin legal team where uh, basically um, they got $2 million a year from defending their patients, or defending them from patients suing them, I should say. So this guy comes to my office to depose me. <clears throat> How many of you have had depositions? A number of you. How many of you have had depositions where the attorney deposing you was throwing things at you and screaming at the top of his lungs because you wouldn't buckle under to what he's telling you? It got so bad that I just kept saying to the uh, person that was taking down the notes, you know, get this on tape, get this on tape. So then we go to court. And he calls me there on Yom Kippur, knowing I won't be seen for two days. So I get seen. He talks only about vocational rehab. Excuse me, vocational rehab and uh, other types of rehabilitation that might include things such as taking the patient bowling. What do you do in patients who have problems with hand-eye abilities, you teach them how to get it back. 
we have PT, OT. I had 20 clinicians in my office that worked, okay, to treat these patients. So we had vocational rehab and we had rehabilitative services, including um, recreational therapy, okay? And so that's what we'd use, for instance, to help somebody regain hand-eye coordination. So he, would, he thought that by hitting me with this stuff, and I'm just sitting there telling him this is why we did it and how we did it, they, bottom line is they lost. And when they talked to the jury, jury said, oh, yeah, we believe Dr. J. Two and a half million dollars. So then they appealed it. And we had to do this whole thing again. And finally, these folks got money. But Dale, the attorney, quit his business. He got out of law. And I got out of doing uh, that sort of legal stuff because it was so obnoxious. But anyway, this guy ended up with enough money to be able to live in his own house without having to worry about it. But that's another example of what happens with denial in the minor traumatic brain injury patient. Post-traumatic headaches is typically one of the first things that patient sees. It will occur within seven days of an injury. Or if they lose consciousness, seven days of regaining consciousness. Head pain, neck pain, headaches worse by exertion, coughing, bending over, or head movements. Anybody seen that? That's from increased intracranial pressure can last anywhere from five seconds to two hours, okay? There is something called primary cough headache, which you can see secondary to this. Dizziness, diplopia, tired eyes, memory problems, loss of appetite, all the problems of post-traumatic or post-concussive syndrome come out when the patients see you, if you ask about it, for post-traumatic headache. Again, onset within seven days, no clinical characteristics, Definition of chronic post-traumatic is three months or more. Inverse relationship between TBI and TBI severity, meaning it's the minor traumatic brain injury patients that will complain of headache. Moderate and severe brain injury patients do not. Severe brain injury patients are typically in a vegetative state, so they're not going to talk about much of anything, but the moderates do not complain of headache. So let's talk about common types of headache with TBI. Okay. One of the things to know is that patients, when they develop a post-traumatic history of headache, you ask first thing, did you have headaches before the injury? Many times what you'll see is patients who had headaches before the injury will have increased the same type of headaches. More frequently, you'll see an eruption of a second type of headache, particularly if you're dealing with migraine first. Okay. So the definition of migraine at least five attacks, okay? Two of the following, unilateral location, but I'll point out that 30% of migraineurs have bilateral headache. Pulsating quality, moderate or severe pain, and difficulty with movement, aggravation with physical routines, okay? If you ask a patient that you're wondering, is this a migraine or a really severe tension type headache? Can you walk up a flight of stairs is a good question to ask because migraine patients can't. If you can ask them, can you walk a block, migraine patients can't. So the ability to perform physical activity is a major differential diagnosis part of it. And at least one of the following, nausea and or vomiting. Typically, they have at least nausea with vomiting occasionally. Photophobia and phonophobia, as well as osmophobia, are also seen with most migraine patients. 
but the migraine headache will always last between four and 72 hours, okay? And then let's talk about, they're typically frontotemporal. Migraine, there's two types of migraine. Without aura, migraine with typical aura is the new term. Migraine without typical aura. Migraine without typical aura is 80% of migraine. Migraine with typical aura is 20%, but typical aura is not what it used to be. We used to think of migraine with aura as visual changes prior to a migraine lasting 5 to 60 minutes prior to a headache. Typical aura now encompasses visual changes, of which there are about 75 different ones. Sensory changes. You can have these patients numbness and tingling in an arm. You can have uh, pain in the hand, the chest, or the back. And the third, speech and cognitive problems. You can have patients with what appears to be either uh, an aphasia receptive or expressive aphasia, meaning they can't either they can't understand what you're telling them or they want to say the sky is blue and it comes out the car is green because they can't get the right words. And typically, short-term memory issues at the same time. Now, typically, all of these three things, if three things occur, they could have one thing, they could have two things, they could have all three in a typical aura, okay? Typically, they'll all occur at the same time, or they can occur sequentially. So they can have visual changes for 45 minutes, and then sensory changes for a half hour, and then 15 minutes of cognitive issues, and then the headache. The headache may also start within an hour after the aura. Okay. Now, there's a lot of new things in terms of what's part of the aura of migraine. Things like a couple of years ago, I did a talk on the um, Alice in Wonderland syndrome, where the patients actually get almost psychotic symptoms and changes. Okay. Run number one. Number two is patients who have, uh, other than that type of issue, transient, dis transient uh, global amnesia. I saw two weeks ago a 22-year-old woman that when she gets a migrainous aura for four to six hours, she has no conception of what she's done, where she's been, who she's talked to, what was said, or anything. Her boyfriend can tell that she's not herself and just follows her around. And then she'll get a headache and return to being cognizant of herself. This is called transient global amnesia. Um, Back when I was a resident, probably in the Paleozoic age, um, transient global amnesia was felt to be secondary to bilateral temporal lobe seizures. It isn't. It's a migrainous aura. So, pathophysiology, nitric oxide, calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP. Who remembers that? They cause sensitization of perivascular nerve terminals and migraine with aura, we talked about. Pathophysiology of migraine starts in the uh, trigeminal nucleus caudalis, that is the, the generator of migraine, which induces second and third degree neurons to go into the dura, up to the dura, and spit out algetic or pain-inducing chemicals. At the same time, the blood vessels near them become enlarged, dilated and the, the uh, wall of the blood vessel becomes edematous, and you see pain-inducing chemicals leaching out of these 
dilated arteries and veins. So what do we know? We know this because Peter Goadsby figured this stuff out when he helped develop rhizotriptan. And so why do we know these things? Because we know what a triptan does. There's seven triptans. Remember, first one was sumatriptan, last one was Ella, or Frova, pardon me. The issue is that what a triptan does is, number one, it stops the trigeminal nucleus caudalis from being activated. It stops the neurons in the dura from spitting out pain-inducing chemicals, and it causes vasoconstriction. It also shuts down the autonomic outflow, which is why you can give patients phenopalatine ganglion blocks. Okay? Some people will use lidocaine, put it on a long plagette, or they put the patient on a chair, have them put their head back and tilt it to one side, and they'll drip in 4% lidocaine, viscous lidocaine. And you can stop the motor or the migraine doing that in a number of patients. Then again, they say in a number of patients, if you do an occipital neuralgia uh, injection, you uh, inject uh, methylprednisolone and lidocaine or bupivacaine around the greater and lesser occipital nerve, you can stop it. I find that does not work as often. But what we do know is during a migraine, the brainstem becomes markedly activated. Raphe nuclei, the serotonergic nucleus, locus ceruleus, the noradrenergic, periaqueductal gray. Okay, your endogenous opiates. The hypothalamus also becomes activated, and everybody doubted that for years, that it had anything to do with migraine, but now we know. Yeah, it does. Tension-type headache. Post-traumatic can be either episodic or it can be chronic. You see typically medication overuse headache with a myofascial pain syndrome with these patients. So how do you treat them? But before we get to treatment, most common variety of headache, least studied, you can get up to 80% of patients post-traumatic headache with tension type. So you need to know how to deal with them. These headaches, intermittent or continuous, when you have a patient that says, I've had a headache for a week, two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, it's tension-type headache. It may be a migraine, too, first, and then it turns into tension-type headache. So you've got to treat both. Here's a picture. This is from Travell's Bible. Here's the temporalis muscle, and you notice this is important when you're examining patients. If you have trigger points in the temporalis, you can get tooth pain as well as pain above the temporalis. Masseter muscle, again, tooth pain, upper and lower tooth, teeth, as well as otalgia. And you can reproduce this by finding the trigger points on examination when you examine the patient. Okay, here is the lateral pterygoid, and here's the big kahuna, here's the sternal part of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. Notice where the pain is in the back of the head, around the eye, the vertex. And then here is the clavicular head, otalgia, and pain above the eye. And basically, that you can find if you feel carefully. Just remember, behind the sternocleidomastoid muscle is that little thing, the carotid. So you don't want to press too hard. So somebody was talking in a talk this morning about the fact that myofascial they were talking about affective or affective disorders. 
increasing pain. Well, muscle nociception and affective disorders build on each other, go through the central sensitization in the brain to the, in the central nervous system. You get dismodulation of serotonin, norepinephrine, endogenous opiates. You see sleep disorder. Think of fibromyalgia. You see tension-type headaches, which is what this all boils down to. You see post-traumatic headaches, minor traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic headaches, can be post-traumatic tension-type or migraine. The definition of chronic migraine, pardon me, is a ridiculous definition, but what it is is vascular headache for at least eight days a month and tension-type headaches. And in many cases, you have medication overuse headache and vasoconstrictor overuse headache. So you can have these patients with four different types of headache. Before you can treat the base headache, you have to treat the analgesic or vasoconstrictor rebound headache patients. I recently had to hospitalize an 18-year-old boy who was injecting himself with sub-Q Imitrex two to three times a day. A day. 60 a month, average. I had no idea to this day where he gets them. His mother wouldn't tell me. So the point is you have to hospitalize these patients. You have to get them off of pain meds. Okay, I've got some heroes in my practice. Okay, let's wait on this for a second. Four to 500 pain pills a month. The definition of medication overuse headache is for analgesic rebound, 10 pain pills or more a month. And these heroes are taking four to 500. I've seen, anybody here prescribe Furacet? Good, please don't. Five Furacet in a woman will create, in a month, will create analgesic rebound. And I've seen patients recently with eight to 10 a day. And so that's 50 milligrams of butelbital. You have to multiply that by the number they're taking. And then what I would do is switch it to phenobarbital and slowly wean them down. Otherwise, they can have a seizure. They can die. Now, there's a, always been a question as to what causes MTBI in the military population, okay? And here's your answer. A low-intensity, low-impact low impact blast wave leads to a minor traumatic brain injury with interest now in this so-called invisible injury. They call it a shock wave traveling through the brain excites a phenon continuum, and I'll explain that, which decays into specific acoustic waves. And the damage only occurs within nanometers. What is a phenom? A phenom, unlike typical in, in uh, classical mechanical quantum mechanics, the theory is that it's vibrational. But a phenom, the vibration becomes really broken down and they have particle-like properties, and that's what disrupts the brain tissue. So we'll evaluate that. These are the four things that supposedly you see post-traumatically, though I've never seen hemicrania continua or cluster post-traumatically. Medication rebound we've talked about. You can either abort or prevent a post-traumatic headache. How do we treat it? You want to start with physical and psychological eval. Okay. Peripheral mechanisms, what are you going to deal with? Using physical therapy or simple analgesics. And I kept this slide with saying simple analgesics just to say, just say no. 
when the patient says, can I take my Tylenol and my Advil and all this good stuff? Just say no. Anybody have Goody's powder where they live? Goody's powder, yeah. I had, I had a patient a week ago taking six a day. And I said to him, you know, do you have a stomach that works? You know, do you have kidneys that work? And he'd been doing it for six months. Goody's powders, which are really, really large doses of NSAID. All right, so then you have central mechanisms, which would be what? Your migraine. You don't use acute analgesics unless it's a child. You don't use NSAIDs. Triptans or ergotamines in children, you, do, you can use triptans. You can also use cycloheptadine, which is a antihistamine. Prophylactically, there's now five prophylactic medications approved by the FDA. First, most commonly used is Topamax, okay? But if you get above 150 milligrams a day, you're asking for uh, short-term memory changes, word-finding problems, and so on. So you want to try to keep it below 150. Top, uh, Depakote, you should not give to a woman of childbearing age unless they've been surgically sterilized because of birth defects. There is a major black box warning. You don't want to not do that. Verapamil, 160 to 240 milligrams a day. Okay? The nice thing about verapamil, it's a calcium channel blocker, and what it does is it has such a benign side effect profile that you can use it in pregnant women. And lastly, there's two more, beta blockers, which I don't like to use at all because of depression and edema that form. And also, particularly in the young people, uh, I get a lot of folk from the armed forces, so you don't want to stop their heart rate or prevent their heart rate from really working fast. And lastly, of course, is Amovig, the first humanized antibody CGRP receptor antagonist. Okay. A couple of points about that. Number one is it can take two to three months to reach maximal therapeutic effectiveness. So if they try it for a month and it doesn't work, you still want to try it two or three months at about $600 a month. It's not cheap. I prescribed it six times, and except for one guy who paid cash, almost everybody else, their insurance company said no. Tension type headache, again, the acute analgesics and NSAIDs, just say no. What do I use to treat these patients? The drug of choice is tizanidine or Xanaflex, 12 milligrams at night or three tablets, four milligram tablets. It is a alpha-2 noradrenergic agonist. It increases GABA in the internuncial neurons of the spinal, the cervical spinal cord. Basically, it works well for chronic muscle spasm. And you want to look at psychological and behavioral therapies. But then again, I heard a talk this morning about how important and wonderful they were, but she didn't mention nobody pays for them. So with that, we'll end this. I don't know why that went back there. So thank you.